It is my great joy to be able to minister to you again the Word of God. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter as we continue our verse-by-verse study of this great epistle. I remind you that preaching is God's instrument for saving sinners. Preaching is also God's instrument for equipping the saints. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached, literally through preaching, to save those who believe. And so when we come together on Sunday morning, we do more than just read Scripture. We do more than tell stories or tell jokes or do book reports or facilitate some kind of group discussion, but rather the Word of God is preached systematically, verse by verse, expositions and applications of the text. And so I pray this morning that this message will help sober the careless and encourage the faint-hearted, especially those within the sound of my voice in other countries, those of you that listen in. I've heard from some of you from China and from some of the Eastern European countries where there's great oppression. Some of you are listening from Muslim countries where the persecution is great. And so I pray that the word this morning will encourage you as it will encourage all of us here. And by God's grace, the saints will be equipped for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, as Paul has said in Ephesians 4 so that we can ultimately have the unity of the faith, or doctrinal unity. So, we come to this text this morning, in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we find ourselves in verses 13 through 17. Now, before we look at this, may I say that it is crucial that doctrinal truth translates into practical application in your life. When we learn Bible doctrine, it should literally cause us to live differently. But right doctrine will only produce right living when we choose to live live consistently with what we know to be true. It's a great tragedy when we see Christians with great theological acumen whose character is carnal. And as a result... You see ungodly living, you see broken relationships, and on and on it goes. And certainly Peter was concerned for these dear saints in the first century who were suffering profound persecution. He wanted to make sure that not only did they have the right doctrine, but they were applying it to their lives. Therefore, after 12 verses here in 1 Peter of exhilarating theology, describing the source and the nature of, of our salvation, Peter now transitions from edification to exhortation for the purpose of application. And therefore, this morning I've entitled my sermon to you, Rightful Obligations. Rightful Obligations, frankly, due to the salvation that we have received. So let's read beginning in verse 13. Of First Peter 1. Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. 
Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who calls you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay upon earth. Here we have three categories of exhortation pertaining to everyday living. Very, very practical exhortations. And I have divided them in this way so that you can remember them and by God's grace live them. First of all, we will see how important it is to, number one, live in light of eternity. Secondly, to live separate from the world. And thirdly, to live with reverential awe. Live in light of eternity, live separate from the world, and live with reverential awe. And dear friends, I pray that you will write these great truths on your heart and live by them. While these rightful obligations are simple to understand, they require enormous conviction and discipline and, frankly, supernatural enablement to live them out. But by God's grace, we can do this. Now, let me prepare your minds a little bit for this text. The Christian life is really all about choices. If we make bad choices, we will reap bad consequences. It's the principle of sowing and reaping. And it's very tragic that habitual bad choices in a person's life will ultimately define their character. When an individual habitually indulges in a particular sin, he or she will eventually become enslaved by that sin and become the personification of that sin. In fact, in Romans 6.16 we read, Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. And later on, even in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 19, Peter's talking about false teachers and he says, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. So, for example, if you are a person who persistently malingers and feigns incapacity, and you choose not to be responsible in everyday life, you will eventually be known by that sin, and you will eventually be known by what the Bible would call a sluggard. If you are a man who continually indulges, let's say, in pornography, eventually that will take you over and you will become a fornicator and an adulterer. If you are, we'll say, a woman who habitually lies, you will eventually be known as a liar. If you are a teenager who habitually indulges in alcohol, eventually you will be known as a drunkard, and on and on it goes. So whatever the sin, if it is habitually practiced in your mind, in your fantasies, and even certainly in your behaviors, eventually 
like the metastasizing corruption of a malignant tumor, it will take you over. You will be enslaved by it. You will become it. You will become the poster child of that which you practice in your heart. Solomon tells us in Proverbs 26, verse 11, like a dog that returns to its vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And what's worse, left unchecked, like the corruption of that tumor I just mentioned, that can take over and corrupt your entire life, eventually your life will begin to corrupt your family's life. And many times you see generations of the same kind of wickedness. How tragic that is in anybody, anyone's life, but especially in the life of one who understands the great truths of salvation and profess, professes faith in Christ, but who, for whatever reason, is lazy and perhaps indifferent in living out those truths. These are great commands, therefore, that when they are obeyed, will help you to live victoriously in your life rather than experiencing perpetual defeat. I hear this many times from people. I'm just so disappointed and disgusted in my life because I just seem to commit the same sins over and over and over again. Well, why is that? Well, it's because you do not understand and you are not living out the things that we will be discussing today. So listen very carefully. The first thing that Peter encourages us to do is to live in light of eternity. Notice verse 13. He says, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, grammatically, the phrase here, fix your hope completely, is the dominant theme of this text. It's the dominant admonition here, and it's a command that literally means to perfectly and unreservedly to utterly live your life in light of eternity. Remember now, we've looked at this glorious theme of, of Peter's doxology in the weeks that have gone by. He has spoken to us about the triumphant hope of our election, that we are chosen, sanctified, sealed and blessed. We have learned about our source, the source of our salvation, who is the Father that, that, that drew us and the power of our salvation, that we've been born again. There's this glorious regeneration. There's the miracle of the new birth. We have learned of the promise of our salvation, that we have an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, that it is undefiled, it will not fade away. We've learned of the certainty of our salvation, that we have an inheritance that is reserved or literally guarded in heaven, and it is protected by the very power of God. And as a result of that, Peter in his doxology has just gotten so excited and he's encouraged us all to rejoice with inexpressible joy because we have a salvation that is secure, a faith that is proven, a commendation that is inevitable, a love that is unseen, a deliverance that is in progress. Therefore, now he says, I want you to live consistently with these glorious truths. These are rightful obligations. I want you, therefore, to fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, I want you to fully trust God to deliver all of the promises that he has given to you when he 
comes again his second time when you stand in the presence of his glory. And I want you to live your life as if you are going to stand in his presence in the next second. I want you to live that way. Now, let me give you an example. Imagine if you've been separated for your, from your family for a long period of time. And I know some of you have family members that are in, in Iraq serving in the military. And others of us have family members that are there and in Afghanistan. And we've got uh, people that we love, that we miss, family members that perhaps we haven't seen for a long time. Now, after a while, especially if you're the one separated from your family, you will begin to develop a preoccupation of your family. You will long to be with them. And when that happens, everything else in life is secondary, even tertiary, maybe even non-essential. It's like the only thing you're thinking about is your family. You long to be with them. Everything you think and everything you do is merely a means to that end. Nothing else really even competes. And frankly, when you're in that situation, and I've been there before, you, you don't even like being distracted with other things because you just want to be with your family because you miss them so much. You're thinking of that glorious reunion. You are, shall we say, having your hope fixed on your family. This is the same principle here. He's saying, I want you to fix your hope completely on that ultimate reunion, on the consummation of your salvation, the consummation of divine grace. Now, how do we do this? Well, we see here the Spirit of God is very practical. And he gives us two very practical admonitions instructing us on how to live in light of eternity. Two things. He wants us to prepare our minds for action and to keep sober in spirit. In verse 13. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, to prepare your mind for action. In the King James, it says, gird up the loins of your mind. You must understand the ancient Oriental custom and culture. They wore loose, flowing robes, as many of them do to this day. And if it was time to go to battle or do some type of work or run from an enemy or whatever it might be, you would have to take those loose, flowing robes and you would have to tuck them in to a belt, to some kind of a sash or a belt, so that you were prepared to do whatever you needed to do. So the issue here is that of preparedness. We might say in our vernacular, it's time to roll up your sleeves. You see, it's time to get busy here, get serious about doing what you must do. And so metaphorically, what the Holy Spirit is telling us is that we must rid ourselves of anything that might distract us or might trip us up and prevent us from fixing our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Christ Jesus. So in light of the triumphant hope of our salvation, he's saying that I want you to live in a state of mind that remains ready to discharge the rightful duties for your master who will one day be unveiled in all of his glory. That's the point. Now, there's a similar exhortation in a in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, where we are told to take up the full armor of God so that we will be able to resist in the evil day. And it says, stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. And again, the soldiers would do this. They would um, prepare themselves for hand-to-hand -hand combat. So they would have to take in their robes and they would tuck them in this large leather belt that would be girding up their loins. And he is saying here, gird up your loins with truth. 
And by the way, it goes on to say then, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and that's what the soldiers would do. That big belt would be the foundation for the breastplate that they would put on to protect them. And that's what we must have. We must have the belt of truth. And upon that foundation of truth and integrity as Christian people, we can have the breastplate of righteousness. If you don't have truth, you won't have righteousness. And so this is the thinking here. So victory depends upon how sincere we are about knowing and living the truth and being prepared to live it out. And sadly, all too often, many Christian people are unprepared spiritually. They're doctrinally illiterate. Many of them are unteachable, undisciplined, very often very critical. Spurgeon put it well. They are, quote, tattooed with Christianity. And he goes on to say that their faith is only skin deep. It never gets into their hearts or affects their souls. Paul reminds us of this in Colossians 3 and verse 2. He says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You see, this needs to be the preoccupation of our minds in our daily life, living in light of eternity. And when you're around a person like that, it, it becomes obvious very quickly that there is a holy resoluteness about that person. You, you listen to them talk for just a few minutes and you can see that they're living in the light of eternity. It's obvious that they're unattached to this world. They're, they're, they're in a state of readiness to meet their king. Unlike so many people whose lives remind me of that game that I hate to play, I'm sorry if you like it, Trivial Pursuit. I mean, good grief. It's like people that are obsessed with, with matters that are eternally irrelevant. I mean, for a Christian to be preoccupied with some of the things that we're preoccupied with in light of eternity is like a man who is proud of his collection of pancakes. I, I don't get it. I mean, what's the deal here? It doesn't make any sense. Yesterday I was in a conversation with a group of men. As many of you know, it's dove season and many of us here in the South, we go and it's kind of a, uh, almost a ritual type of thing in our culture to hunt. And there's the breakfasts and the lunches that are catered in and all of this. And, and it was interesting listening to the group of men talk, the conversation. I could tell what the, what the preoccupation of their mind was. It began with politics and it quickly descended into something of far greater importance. And that is the roster of the Titans. And then from there it went into hockey. And for about an hour I had to hear all of this stuff and you try to be nice and but you can tell that's their pancakes that they're collecting. I, I, I found myself kind of in the back of my mind thinking, wouldn't it be interesting to ask them, what do you think God would have us do as people to somehow get more serious about evangelism? Or to bring up the topic of Bible prophecy. Can you imagine what would have happened? But I think you get the point too often. We are preoccupied with things that are irrelevant. Reminds me of one man I remember counseling with a number of years ago. His life was a spiritual wreck. His family was in disaster. And every time I talked with him, he would bring in his collection of baseball cards. That, that, that was his life. 
Now, folks, don't hear me say that collections of baseball cards and hobbies and these types of things are wrong. What I'm saying is it's when it becomes the passion and the obsession of your life, especially for believers. And I would just ask you, what are the preoccupations of your mind? Are they things above or are they things on earth? And by the way, the dominant characteristic of somebody that's living in light of eternity will be that they will have a, a passion for spiritual nourishment. They will have a longing for the Word of God, for serious Bible study and prayer, combined with a lifestyle of selfless sacrifice, holy living and evangelism. And too many Christians, I fear, have minds that are preoccupied with matters that are sinful at worst and eternally inconsequential at best. And therefore, their minds are not prepared for action. They're trying to go through the Christian life and fight the battles of the Christian life, and they're tripping all over their robes of, of all the garbage in their life. And they wonder why they so frequently stumble, consumed by the cares of the world, consumed by everything that, frankly, are ultimately, eternally irrelevant. Well, bottom line, we cannot live in light of eternity and thus transcend the enormous and inevitable trials of life unless we prepare our minds for action and live in a state of preparedness. Moreover, we cannot have our hope, therefore, fixed on the glorious revelation of Christ and all that will be ours in our salvation unless we maintain a state of mind of preparedness and anxious anticipation. So, first of all, we must gird up our minds for action if we're going to live in light of eternity. But secondly, he tells us to keep sober in spirit. In other words, don't live carelessly. Later on in chapter 5, verse 8, Peter said this again in a different way. He said, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And certainly that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to tempt you so that you will sin and Break fellowship with the Lord and your life begin to go downhill. He wants to discourage you. He wants to defeat you. He will try to do that through persecution as well. So what do you have to do? You have to be of sober spirit. You've got to be on the alert. And so here in this text in verse 13, he says, keep sober in spirit. In other words, be spiritually alert. Be, be clear-headed as opposed to being intoxicated with all of the allurements of the world. You know, there is nothing, at least for me, that is more obnoxious than an out-of-control, slobbering, blubbering drunk who is incapable of making wise decisions. That's what Peter is saying here. Don't get drunk with the corrupting influences of the world. But I want you to keep a clear spiritual head. Don't lose control. I want you to stay sober. I want you to stay alert to the dangers of temptation. And folks, this is essential, by the way, to gaining victory over life-dominating sins. This living in light of eternity by guarding your, your mind and here keeping a sober spirit. You've got to refuse to become intoxicated by anything in life. And when this discipline becomes something that is well-honed in your, in your life, the temptations of the world will begin to lose their power. For example, if I have my hope fixed on all that God has given me and I have my sights 
said on that day when I stand before Him blameless with great joy in the presence of His glory, if I'm living in light of that and I have therefore been living with a prepared mind and I'm sober in spirit, then when some sordid something comes on television, I, I, I don't want that. I, I don't want to get drunk with that. That's what my flesh wants to drink in, but I don't want that. You see, that has to be the battlefield right there. I'm not going to think about anything because I'm thinking about something far more profound. And therefore, when something filthy or immoral comes on, some kind of entertainment that Hollywood puts out or some kind of music or whatever it is, no way, I don't want that. I don't want that junk that makes me drunk with the world. I'm intoxicated by His grace, not by the world. I, I want to have, as he says here, a sober spirit. John Piper said something very interesting in light of this, and he uses the example here of sexual temptation. I want to read you what he says, and I quote, If you make that your issue, that referring to hoping fully in the grace of God and letting nothing come into your mind for long that desensitizes you to the glory of spiritual things or diminishes your passion for God, if that's your battlefield, then you may never have to fight the immediate temptation of adultery or fornication. Sex, of course, is not the only drug that intoxicates and numbs the mind of spiritual reality. The same can be true of money and career and power, romance novels, soap operas, TV advertisements and fishing and coin collecting and computers and rehabbing and gardening and on it goes. He goes on to say the point is, know what numbs your mind to God and avoid it. Stay sober for the sake of full and passionate hope in God's grace. And then finally he says, the great concern of God is that we not be moderate hopers, that we not be satisfied with half-hoping hearts, but that we engage our minds with the hope-producing truth of Scripture and that we guard our minds from the hope-diminishing causes in the world, end quote. So when we prepare our minds for action and we keep sober in spirit, we will be able to fix our hope on the grace to come and therefore we will be able to live in light of eternity. The Apostle Paul reminds us in Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's the focus. That's how you live in light of eternity. But Peter tells us something else. He tells us to live separate from the world in verses 14 and 16 through 16. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now, parents and grandparents and even people that don't have kids, you know how wonderful it is to have obedient children. And of course, we all have that by God's grace. It's a joy to our hearts. In fact, Proverbs 10, verse 1 says that a wise son makes a glad father. And obviously, the opposite does the opposite. But obedience is always the hallmark of every true child of God. 
That will be the pattern of our life, although at times it will be interrupted by seasons of disobedience. And that's why we have so many New Testament admonitions for us to choose to be obedient. But here in verse 14, he's saying, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. The word conformed is the really denotes the idea of of do not be fashioned or do not be shaped by. In fact, in Romans 12, 2, it says that we are not to be conformed to this world. And because of the grammar of that text, it indicates that it's the world that does the conforming to you without you realizing it. Literally, be careful. Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Don't let the world fashion you into itself. Don't let the world shape you into what it wants you to be. Be careful with that. In fact, that text, if you look at it exegetically, you will even see that that shaping, that conforming will cause you to be something on the outside inconsistent with who you are on the inside. And the next phrase in Romans 12, too, says, but rather than that, be transformed. Comes, uh, transformed is the word, it comes uh, from the Greek word metamorpheo, which is the word metamorphosis in English. In other words, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And again, because of the grammar, it indicates that this transformation will be something that is a result of the renewing of your mind. And literally, when you have the mind of Christ, when you're filling yourself with the Word of God, there is a transformation that occurs, and it will be something that you do not necessarily choose to do, but it will happen to you by the power of the living God. There will be a transformation. And so the point is, you've got to be so careful, folks, that you don't put yourself in situations in the world living consistently with the world, and without you realizing it, you become like the world. Peter is saying here, as obedient children, do not be conformed to those former lusts. So, these were lusts, as we see, that were yours in ignorance. In other words, before you were saved, before you received the knowledge of the truth, before you were given a new heart and a new mind. Don't go back and live consistently with that stuff and allow that stuff to fashion you. How pitiful to see people that call themselves Christians, and yet when you look at their lifestyle, you, you, you can't see any difference in their lifestyle from people that are not saved. You see, before we were saved, think about this, our whole life centered around self. We were filled with self-gratification, with selfishness. We were self-absorbed, self-centered, in search for self-aggrandizement. We blindly pursued anything that the world could offer us to somehow satisfy our fleshly appetites. And we had absolutely no regard for the will of God in our lives. We were characterized basically by unrestrained indulgence. Our worldview, our value system, our personalities were basically images of the society, the culture that shaped them. Our hearts were a factory of idols. And these, therefore, were all of our lusts and our ignorance. But we don't have to be that way anymore. Now, some people say, oh, well, it's just so impossible in the world in which we live. You know, I seem to commit the same sins over and over. Well, folks, if that is you, may I just humbly say that you're either not born again. You might profess Christ, but you don't really possess Him. Or, number two, maybe you know Christ, but you're just undisciplined and you're carnal in your life. And you're not living consistently with some of the truths that I'm sharing with you here this morning. 
Because dealing with sin, especially life-dominating sins, is serious business. And you have to get serious about starving your lusts. The old phrase would be to mortify your flesh. You know, and as that happens, they begin to lose their power. And then biblically, we see that the, the, the process for change is always a two-factor process. You've got to put off and put on. But I feel so powerless, people say. Well, hey, if you're a believer, guess what? You've got power. You're just not tapping into it. You have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 9, and 10 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And it goes on to say, if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, referring to the unregenerate, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So the point is, if God's Spirit dwells in you, the human spirit has therefore been made alive and capable of living righteously. So you have the power. Galatians 5 says that we've got to walk by the Spirit. And when you do, you'll not carry out what? The desire of the flesh. Absolutely. So you can't expect to have victory over the flesh if you're not walking. In other words, if you're not having intimate fellowship with the Holy Spirit. If you're not on a moment-by-moment -moment basis submitting to the Holy Spirit as He has revealed Himself in His Word. You'll just not have any power. But when you do, then you will understand what Paul said in Colossians 3, beginning in verse 5. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. All right, now, back to the text. Peter exhorts us, therefore, to live lives that are separate from the world. And the key to that is to not allow yourself to be conformed to it or by it. We, we must live consistently with the longings of our new heart. We must starve the former lusts that were ours in ignorance. By the way, unsaved people have absolutely no capacity to live righteously. They, they have no idea what it even looked like, looks like. To, to live for the glory of God. Let me give you an example. During spring break, go down to the drunken, immoral college students who are utterly enslaved to their lusts, the lusts of their flesh, and ask them, won't you choose to honor God in your life? Won't you choose to begin to keep His commandments and live for His glory? Now, after they stop laughing at you uncontrollably, you'll begin to realize that you are asking a person who is spiritually dead in his sin to share a Christian worldview and live for the glory of God, something that is utterly impossible about, apart from the transforming power of the Spirit of God. That's as silly as asking a corpse in a casket to stand up and sing the national anthem. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. But not so for those of us who have been transformed by God's grace and His mercy. It's not to our credit, it's to Him that all of the glory belongs. Therefore, therefore, we can be obedient to Peter's command here in verse 15. He says, but like the Holy One who has called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. 
So in other words, Peter is saying on the one hand, stop your sinning. But on the other hand, I want you to choose instead to be holy. Remember now, holiness is the divine standard for which we strive. But we will never ultimately attain until glory. And I might also remind you that no person has ever come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ apart from understanding, at least at some, at some minimal level, the holiness of God and therefore the sinfulness of man. In fact, Hebrews 12.14 says, Without holiness, no one will see God. And when we look at Scripture, whether it's in the Hebrew, the Kadesh, or we look at, at the Greek term hagios, words for holy, we see that it always means the same. It means separate. It means other. Something of a completely different nature. Not to be compared to anything else that is created. This is who our holy God is. And the world has only seen one holy person. And by the way, it's not this new guy, I forget his name, who's been on television who claims to be Jesus Christ. The only holy person that has ever been on this earth is Christ Jesus. We read of the holiness of God in Exodus 15.11 in the Song of Moses. He says, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? And you remember Hannah's great song of praise in 1 Samuel 2.2. She says, No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. Isaiah reminds us in chapter 57, verse 15, that he says that his name is holy. So here we have holiness being the all-encompassing attribute of God. Holiness stands alone as the defining characteristic of his person. Holiness is the absolute summation of all of his attributes, defining his consummate perfection and his eternal glory. You remember in Isaiah 6, the seraphim, saying the trihagion, holy, holy, holy. They didn't sing love, love, love. They did not sing faithful, faithful, faithful. They did not sing omniscient, 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 or whatever, even though all of those things are true. But the dominant attribute of God, the summation of all of His glorious attributes, is His holiness. And so we're asked to be holy, like He's holy, to be separated from sin, separated unto God. And folks, here's the amazing thing. I want you to hear this. The amazing truth is that holiness will be the ultimate characteristic of every child of God in his or her glorified state. Isn't that an amazing thought? This is the grace to be brought to us. This is what we're to have our eyes and our minds and our hearts fixed upon. But even now we are commanded to come out and to be holy. We're to be separate from the world. So I want you to understand that no Christian can possibly fix their hope on the glory to be revealed apart from a determined commitment to live a holy life, to live a life separated from sin, separated unto God. Therefore, anything that smacks of dishonoring God, we need to run from it, not towards it. Now, that's not our nature, is it? Too often, when we find something that's kind of tempting to our flesh, we're like a moth going to a flame, right? We like to see how close we can get to the precipice of temptation, rather than how far we can run from it. Therein is the danger. So, if we're going to fix our hope, as Peter is commanding us to do here, 
Not only must we live in light of eternity by preparing our minds for action and keeping a sober spirit, and secondly, living separate from the world by keeping ourselves separate from sin, but thirdly, we must live with reverential awe. Notice verse 17. He says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Isn't that a great text? It's so practical, so pointed. Indeed, every child of God addresses him as father. He is our Abba Father. He is our Father who is in heaven. We're told to address him. Jesus said that in Matthew 6, verse 9. And how often have we as Christians cried out to our Heavenly Father for mercy, for grace, for protection? Some of you I know here in the last few weeks have been on your face before the Lord, crying out, Oh, Father, protect me. Oh, Father, give me discernment. Oh, Father, preserve me in the midst of this great storm. And without fail, He has been faithful. He has been loving. He's been intimately involved with us. So for all of us who worship God as Father, for all of us us who recognize that indeed, therefore, He is the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, if that is you, if you're a Christian, then there are some things that we need to do in the context of our living that manifest these great truths that we claim to understand. And to sum it up, I would just say that we need to live with reverential awe. You see, in this age of apostasy, I fear that many Christians mistakenly believe that the dominant attribute of God is some form of sentimental love rather than His holiness. That's why I talk a lot about this newly invented God of neo-evangelicalism, this kind of this this smiley-faced God that winks at sin. But folks, that's not the God of the Bible. He is, as we see here in verse 17... The one who impartially judges according to each one's work. And that's why he's exhorting us here to conduct ourselves in fear during the time of our stay on earth. In other words, conduct yourselves in reverential awe. That's what he's saying. Fearing the Lord. This is the fear that a loving son would have towards a loving father. And it's not only a fear of well-deserved discipline when we disobey, but it's a fear of doing anything that might wound that relationship. We must fear the loving discipline of the Lord. We must remember that He is watching. He is attentive to us. That's why later in chapter 4, verse 17, we're reminded that God chastens and disciplines believers in His church. When Peter says that it begins first with us, he says judgment must begin with the household of God. This is a loving Father. And I want you all to sincerely feel the weight of of what he is saying here in this text. And in order to do so, you must understand, just for a moment, if you'll bear with me, what the Scripture teaches us about the consequences of sin in a Christian's life. The Scripture teaches us that there's two ways in which God, as Peter tells us here, impartially judges according to each one's work. There's two things that happen when we sin, especially when we sin with impunity. Number one, it will provoke present disciplining. And we can read this in Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, about how if we're legitimate sons, obviously the Father will discipline us. You can study that on your own. In other words, this is divine chastening. It can occur and it can be severe. And many Christians literally live under constant divine chastening 
And many times they don't even realize it. At least they don't want to recognize it. They are reaping what they have sown. For example, you have a husband who refuses to lead his wife and his family. What's going to happen? Eventually his family will be a disaster. The marriage will begin to disintegrate. The children will be a source of perpetual grief and on and on it goes. Or maybe you have a wife that resents her role of lovingly submitting to the leadership of her husband. She's the opposite of a gentle and quiet spirit. She refuses to love her husband or children and so on. She ends up, therefore, little by little embracing the lies of feminism that we have in our culture. And what's going to happen? The relationship with her husband will be strained and eventually her relationship with the Lord, of course, will be strained and her children and on and on it goes. And so in every area of life, you must understand that if you sow the wind, you're going to reap the whirlwind. And God is not going to bless you with power in ministry. He's not going to bless you with joy in relationships. He's not going to bless you with contentment in the midst of tribulations. Unless you're living consistently with what he's asked us to do. And therefore, as a result of that, discipline is basically the forfeiture of divine blessing in your life. So when we sin, it can provoke present discipline and the consequences of that. Matthew 18, by the way, talks about that. When a person is finally, because of their lack of forgiveness and lack of obedience before the Lord, they're given over to the torturers of life. And they can be myriad. But not only can we provoke present discipline, but sin can also forfeit future reward Paul spoke of the importance of remembering that the Lord is constantly keeping a record of our works. A lot of Christians don't want to think about this, but He is. He's watching us. He knows our hearts. He knows what we do. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4 5, we read that He eventually will be the one who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. You see, God's not passive. He's not indifferent towards what we do and think in our daily lives. He's watching. And sin is ultimately going to forfeit future reward. In 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 9, we read, Therefore we also have as our ambition, whether at home or present, to be pleasing to Him. Now listen to this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And beloved, this is why it is so important to never forget to live in reverential awe, you see, to live a life of worship. Again, because our loving, holy God is, as Peter tells us here, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Therefore, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. One other passage, Paul describes... Um, the judgment of believers in vivid, vivid detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And there he's speaking of the importance of all believers building um, a life of ministry upon the foundation of the church and so on. And here's what he says. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones. In other words, these are quality materials symbolizing faithful, humble service. If that's what you're building on versus wood, hay and straw which would be inferior building materials symbolizing mediocre, superficial, lazy spiritual service for your glory, not God's. Each man's work will become evident, he goes on to say, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. 
and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Well, folks, I don't know about you, but I don't want to suffer loss. I don't want to forfeit divine blessing in the future. Instead, I want to be, and I hope you want to be, a man or a woman that lives in reverential awe. That lives a life that fears the discipline of the Lord. We know from Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And so God is going to judge us even according to our true character. And I want him to see our character as the character of those who live lives on a moment by moment basis with reverential awe, as Peter is saying here, conducting ourselves in fear during our time of stay on earth. And what a joy to know that according to Psalm 147.11, the Lord favors those who fear Him, those who wait for His loving kindness. And beloved, we will experience the ultimate expression of His loving kindness when He is revealed to us. And this grace that we've had all of our hope fixed upon will be ultimately revealed. And we will... Enjoy all of the blessings that can be ours in our salvation if we heed these rightful obligations. So I challenge you to live in light of eternity, live separate from the world, and live with reverential awe. Let's pray together. Father, may these eternal truths impact us in a profound way. May we indeed live consistently with them and bear much fruit in our life. And Lord, I pray that if there be one within the sound of my voice that knows nothing of the glorious Savior that has transformed us, the one that we long to see face to face, oh Lord, how I pray that You will be merciful to them and breathe spiritual life into them. And in that mysterious way that we cannot fathom, You will cause them to make the choice of placing their faith in the living Savior. We pray this for your glorious sake. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harold's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.